church. I'm grateful again to be with you this morning, and I uh, hope you had a great Thanksgiving. I want to invite you to turn to Romans chapter 5 this morning. That's where we're going to be together in just a moment. Uh, as we've been talking about already, we begin Advent today, celebrating today, and we're going to be in a series of sermons the next several weeks uh, that I'm calling True and Better. True and Better. Jesus is the True and Better. And uh, this series is designed to help us focus on Christmas and, and specifically the Christmas season that can get caught up in so many things and so many different areas of our mind can get pulled in one way or another. And I realize uh, that for some of you, if you've not been a part of our church uh, the last several years, Advent might be a new word to you. We've only really celebrated the last several years, but it's really an ancient thing. It's been going on a long time. Uh, it's a Christian tradition that's been around for a long time. And, and uh, the word Advent really, as, as Hope reminded us earlier, really just means coming or arrival. Uh, and so for, for centuries, Jews had been waiting. When the, the Bible turns from the last page of the Old Testament to the first page of the New Testament, what we miss is that there was a long period of time that had taken place during, those, during that time of history. And Jews had been anticipating this, the arrival of this Messiah, but he had not yet come, and they knew that he hadn't come. And so for centuries, the Jews waited, waited in expectation and hope. Maybe God will come, maybe God will send his Messiah today. And so now, the, the idea with Advent is that we live on this side of, of the first Advent. We know now that Christ has come, but we also know that Christ is still coming. As Bill reminded us as we thought about that passage in Acts 1, that the same way that he was taken up into heaven is the way that Christ will return. And so the idea behind Advent is that it builds in us some anticipation of Christ's return. And we know that Christ's return, couldn't his second coming couldn't have happened unless his first coming happened. And then what we know and we celebrate as the most important event of his life, his death, and his resurrection took place because of that first arrival as well. And so each week as we gather over the next several weeks, we'll light a candle. And, and these candles, in case you're wondering, I'm not colorblind. I'm aware that three are reddish, purplish, whatever color that is to you. One's green and one's white. They have meaning. On the third Sunday of Advent, we'll light the third candle, which really is, again, an, an idea, a visual idea, a visual reminder that we're almost there. We're halfway there. And so we'll light an outer candle this week and an outer candle next week and then the green candle on the third week and then the last red-purple candle on the fourth week and then the Christ candle, the white candle, gets lit on Christmas Eve. Part of this series, and I want to talk about this every year because it's such an important part of the Advent series to me, uh, for the last five or six years now, my, uh, one of my really good friends, Matt Pugh, who is the pastor at Country Bible Church here in Kaufman, Matt and I have uh, collaborated on this sermon series. And so Matt and I met back in September or something. I don't even remember when the first time we met to plan, start planning this year's Advent series was. But we met months ago to start planning uh, adv this Advent series and chose this theme together. We prepared uh, each week. We'll prepare each of these sermons together and then preach them in our own churches. And then on Christmas Eve, uh, we will have a combined Christmas Eve service that I want to encourage all of you to be, uh, be a part of, and we host it one year, and then Country Bible Church hosts it one year, and this year is their, their year to host, which is really great 
if you're me, because I don't have anything to do on Christmas Eve. I just get to show up. So uh, we want to go and to celebrate with them, and we'll be talking more about that as the weeks lead to December 24th and, and celebrating that. And so I want to begin this morning with a prayer, uh, and I want to pray. I'll, I'm going to be mentioning Country Bible Church today as well in my prayer, and also for our time as we enter into this season, remembering Christ's uh, coming and hoping for his return. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning uh, that you, it's always been about you. Um, Sometimes we miss and we forget that as we think about this long story of human history. We think it's about us, or we think it's about somebody that lived a long time ago, uh, but we know really it's been your story all along. You've been unfolding one person, one life at a time. And this morning, God, as we gather, as we begin uh, our journey toward Christmas and the celebration of Christ's first arrival. We pray as we walk through these next several weeks that, uh, that you will build in us some anticipation. Help us to have our hearts more aware of the fact that uh, you're coming back and that we want to live with the same kind of anticipation of that and the hope for that that Jews would have had as they longed for Christ's first arrival even though that didn't they didn't understand all that that meant and even though certainly we don't understand all that your second coming will mean we want to wait in expectation and hope and so we pray through your spirit that you'll help us to be expectant to be hopeful to be waiting as the weeks come together we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters at country bible church as they over the next several weeks also begin to think about advent and to Think about how Jesus is the true and better in every way. We pray this morning you'll give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you want us to see and hear. In Jesus' name, amen. So each week, uh, we're going to talk about the way that Jesus is the true and better version of someone from the Old Testament. And today, uh, we're going to talk about Adam. Jesus is the true and better Adam. And this is a good example as you think about a series that I did earlier this fall on the Bible, and I talked about how it's important to read the Old Testament, read really all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And I hope that you'll be able to see uh, some application of that idea over the next several weeks. Our story this morning starts at the very beginning of the Bible. Many of you know already the first lines, the opening lines of Scripture, in the beginning God created God created the heavens, and God created the earth. God created light. God created the sun and the moon. God created plants and birds and fish and animals of all kinds. God created the stars. Day after day after day, God created, and God called everything that God had created good. And at the end of the sixth day of creation, God does something that he hasn't done up to this point. He creates humans. God says to himself, let us make humans in our image, in our likeness, so that they'll bear our image, that we will carry, humanity will carry the image of God. Unlike any other thing that has been created in the first six days of creation, humans will uniquely and distinctly carry the image of God in a way that the animals do not, that the stars do not, that the sun does not. Let us make humans in our image so that they might rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air. So sure enough, God 
creates humanity. Male and female, men and women. Adam was the man. Adam was made from the Adama, which is the word for earth, dirt. And Eve was the woman. Eve's name means life. So dirt and life were created. Adam and Eve both created in God's own image. And God said about Adam and Eve that it was very good. A statement that is different from other things that have been created up to this point. And God placed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and told them to tend the garden and take care of the garden. And life really was good for Adam and Eve at this point. I mean, they were beings that bore the image of God. Their life was as good as it could possibly have been. God told Adam that they were free to eat from every tree in the Garden of Eden except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil would cause death. And so as long as they obeyed God, as long as they followed God's command, they would have no knowledge between the difference between good and evil, what most of us today would think would be absolute bliss, right? It would be paradise. No knowledge of the difference between good and evil. And life was good as long as they followed that command. But like all the best stories, this story also has a dark enemy. Genesis chapter 3 calls this enemy a serpent at this particular point in the story. He takes on some other forms at later points in the story. And we see this serpent show up in the third chapter of Genesis, and things start to go south as soon as this enemy arrives on the scene. The serpent finds Eve in the garden, and he asks Eve, Did God really tell you that you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve responded, we can eat from every tree in the garden except for one tree, the tree that's in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We can't eat from that tree or we'll die. And this enemy responds, surely you won't die. What God meant to say, the serpent says, is that if you eat from this tree, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God. Because God knows the difference between good and evil, and you don't. And once you eat from that tree, your eyes will be opened, and you too will know the difference between good and evil. And so Eve ate, and she shared some with her husband, Adam, and he ate. And the serpent was right in one regard. The eating opened their eyes, and the serpent was terribly wrong in another regard. Their eating also did usher death into the story. So God issues this statement in Genesis 3, verse 19. It's at the end of really God's statement about the curse. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground, since from the ground you were taken, for, you, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. Death is ushered into the story. Now Adam will return from the Adama that he was created from. Death now gets the last word. That's what Genesis 3.19 says. Death now gets the last word. Life in paradise, life in the garden is lost. And this was not only true, unfortunately, for Adam and Eve. This would be true for every human being that would follow Adam and Eve after that. Sin entered the world through Adam's action. And so at this point in the story, we're left to wonder. 
What would happen, right? Where is the story going to turn? Is it going to trend in a more positive way? Or is it over at this point? Was all hope lost? Did Adam's decision get the last word? And are all we going to do in this life is live and then die and return to the dust? And that's it. And the good news is that when sin threatened God's plan, God's answer all along, because Jesus has always been at the center of it all, was Jesus Christ. God chose to redeem humanity, and and in redeeming humanity, he undid the curse that was brought on by Adam's action. And he did undid that curse by doing the unthinkable. God became human. God became one of us. God was found wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. Emmanuel, God with us. God who has become one of us. I don't know if you remember that song. It was when I was from when I was growing up. I, I, I wish I could remember the, the band. I think they were kind of a one-hit wonder. And the only line that I really remember from the song was, what if God was one of us? I think the, actually the second line I remember is, what, uh, what if God was one of us, just a slob like one of us, right? The truth is, I'm not sure Jesus was a slob like us, but he was us, right? Jesus was us. God is us. He became us. He had skin and he had flesh and he had bones. But the truth is, we know that. So we, we, that's not really new information. And so we come to a time of the year like this and we think, how are we going to talk about this miraculous concept in a way that is new or is at least unfamiliar enough to all of us that it will be, you know, strike us maybe in a new way? What does it mean for God to be one of us? And why did it have to happen this way? I mean, why did, why did it have to unfold the way that it did so that God would be lying in a manger in Bethlehem wrapped in swaddling clothes? Why this way? These are, I think, the questions that Paul is trying to deal with in Romans chapter 5. And I want to ask you to read with me there. I'm going to begin this morning in verse 12. And there is... Paul is, uh, is, says a lot in a short amount of time. And so I'm going to kind of take this passage a, a little piece by a little piece here so I can try to unpack some of what he says. Romans 5, verse 12, Paul says, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sin. Now, your Bible might have a dash Uh, it would be like us writing a dot, 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 right? So Paul interrupts himself. That's what's happening in verse 12. Paul starts to talk about what happened in Adam, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through Adam's sin. And in this way, because of Adam's action, death came to all people because all of us have sinned. Paul starts in verse 12, and he he starts to say that, you know, sin entered the world through one man. And and we're like, yeah, yeah, we, we know all that. We know all that's not, where's the good news, right? That's mostly just bad news. And before he provides the good news, which really doesn't get picked up until about verse 18, the end of 17, beginning of 18, he interrupts himself because it's like he remembers he's got to explain some of what he just wrote in verse 12. 
And so before he provides the good news, he's got a couple of things he wants to explain. The first of those is in verses 13 and 14, where he says this, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given. Paul is really hung up on the law, and he wants to talk about the law. He talks about it a lot. So he says, To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, when Moses gave the Ten Commandments to the Israelites. But sin is not charged against anyone's account when there is no law. Okay, so what he's saying is, what do you do with all the people who lived before the law was given? And he says, nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as did Adam, who is the pattern of the one to come. So in verses 13 and 14, Paul is trying to explain this puzzle, basically, that I think, and he, he, I think he believes, might otherwise get in our way if we don't understand exactly what happens. Because a long time passes between Adam and Moses. A long time, a lot, lot of history is covered in that ground. So he's kind of addressing this idea that somebody said, well, what about all those people? Right? What's the deal with those people? Adam was given a direct command, and Adam broke it. God gave Israel a set of direct commands for Moses, and they broke those. But in between Adam and Moses, human beings kept on sinning, kept on dying, uh, even though there was no law to keep track of what they did. So Paul's point is, death, we just, he just says it doesn't matter, right? Death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses because of Adam's sin. It was already a part of the human story. And in verse 15, he continues, he says, But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, Adam, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? <clears throat> now, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin, and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Now, I think that the, these verses may be the most important about here in this part of what Paul's talking about. For me, uh, there was some, some stuff that I had really not thought about much as I really began to dig into these verses in Romans chapter 5. And I think that it w if we will allow it, it will transform the way we think about what God did in Christ through his life, death, and resurrection. In verse 15, we see this turn, and we see Paul begin to provide a little bit of hope. We might be tempted to think, Paul says that the trespass, Adam's sin in the garden, and the gift, Jesus' death and resurrection, are equal or are just like opposite, like they're two sides of the same coin, right? That's, that's what he's saying. That is the temptation. And I, I actually think I have been guilty of that. I've, I have been guilty of thinking, I would guess many of us have, of thinking mostly what Jesus did was kind of just pick us back up and dust us off and set us on our feet, right? And, and, and he mostly just kind of undid the action of Adam. It was, Adam was, brought sin, Jesus brought life, kind of the end of the story. They're basically just opposite things. And Paul says, 
This is not the case. They are not opposite things. Redeeming humanity is more than just reversing Adam's sin and the results of Adam's sin. Redeeming humanity is more than just reversing Adam's sin and the results of Adam's sin. This is why Paul says, beginning in verse 15, the gift is not like the trespass. What Jesus' death and resurrection mean is that humanity has been redeemed. The end of humans was going to be dust because of Adam's action in the garden. And Paul's point is that it is not just that humanity has been put back on track, right? Like, like when Adam and Eve were in the garden before. Like that now what we have is kind of this, you know, the, this perfect utopia of a life. What, what, what happened was not that our lives just got put back on track to the way that Adam and Eve's life was before sin in the garden. That makes sense? I think it's kind of a complicated idea, so I want to be sure you're, you're tracking with me because here's the, here's the question that, that that scenario would lead us to ask. What would be better about that? If all that Jesus did was restore us to the way that life was when Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin entered the story. What would be better about that? And the answer is nothing. Nothing would be better about that scenario. We would be in the same situation that Adam and Eve were in before sin entered the story. Our sin, which would be inevitable, leading to death. Right? Because, again... If you believe that God's plan was always for, to send Jesus into the world and God sending Jesus into the world wasn't just like a, uh-oh, plan B, Adam and Eve screwed it up and now I've got to send myself to re- rescue and redeem people. If you believe that God's plan was always to send Jesus, then sin was inevitable. It was an inevitable part of the story. They would not have been able, Adam was not going to do it perfectly. A true and better Adam was going to be needed at some point. And the story of God, what we see is that lots of people try and no one can do it, which is why we need Jesus Christ. We'd be in the same scenario if all God had done was restore life back through Christ. It was restore life back to the way it was in the garden before sin entered the story. Our sin would eventually lead to death. We would be destined to make the same mistakes. We would be bound to continue the cycle of sin and of death. Right? If all that Jesus did was get us back on par with Adam and Eve, then we're no better off. We are no better off. But the place that you are now, Paul says, is so much better than where Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin entered the story. It is far better than before. And in verse 18, he continues. This is what he, why he says, Consequently, Just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification in life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. What Paul is saying is that Adam's choice to break God's command in the garden. What it did was it created a way of being, a type of humanity, a way to be in the world. 
And, and, and his action brought sin and death into the world with it. And we are removed from the Garden of Eden, like Adam and Eve, on account of our sin and on, on account of Adam's sin. And Adam, what, what we see is that Adam couldn't offer us hope out of the situation that we found ourselves in. We were going to be dust. The curse that was in Genesis 3.19 for Adam, was spoken to Adam, was also spoken to us outside of the, the power of Jesus Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. That's why our situation is now is better than it was before. Because now, Paul says, what happened is Adam created a type of humanity and Jesus has created a new type of humanity through his death and resurrection. The gift of God is better than just life. It's not just that you're not going to die. It's also righteousness, and it's also grace. In Christ, Paul says, you have defeated death. That's the part we know. But you have also been made righteous, which is the part we're not sure we believe. And you have been given life. Tim Keller says, says it this way. He says, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is ascribed to us. The story of humanity began, just think about these parallels. The story of humanity began in the garden with Adam. And the story of the new humanity also began through the second Adam in the garden, the garden of Gethsemane. In the first garden, Adam did not pass the test. But in the second garden, Jesus did. In the first garden, Adam and Eve shifted blame to other people. And in the second garden, Jesus took all the blame onto himself. In the first, with the first Adam, death entered the world as Adam and Eve were gathered around a tree. And with the second Adam, life is gifted to all of us. Righteousness is gifted to all of us. Grace has been extended to all of us because Jesus hung on a tree. The second Adam did for Adam what Adam could not do for himself. The second Adam did for us what we could not do for ourselves. He pulls us up out of the grave and he gives us righteousness and he gives us grace. There's a painting from about the year 1315, about 500 you know, it's, it's, a really, it's, a really, it's a really, really old painting, and it's in Istanbul, Turkey right now. But I think this picture just uh, perfectly portrays this image of, uh, that we're talking about this morning, of what Jesus' death and resurrection meant. See, death wasn't a concept. Death was not a concept before Adam's sin. Adam literally dug his own grave. He dug your grave and my grave. Adam was going to live with God forever in the garden. And then death reigned. And so Jesus, what Jesus does in his death and resurrection is he pulls Adam and Eve up from the graves that they dug for themselves and up from the grave that we were destined to be in as well. This is a picture of Jesus in the middle pulling Adam on the left and Eve on the right up out of their graves. What, what it really is, is an artistic depiction of Philippians chapter 2. When Paul says that because of Jesus' death on the cross, 
God would give Jesus the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee would bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Adam and Eve placed back in right relationship with God by the second Adam, Jesus. And one thing that Advent reminds us is that death does not have the last word anymore. This is the way I end most of my funerals, actually, for people who are in Christ. Because as sad as those realities are, the loss of someone we love so dearly, in Christ, it is not the last word. Praise God and hallelujah. And Advent reminds us, maybe more than anything else, that death does not have the last word. The curse of Genesis 3 has been undone. And all things that were untrue are going to be true. And death doesn't have the last word for Adam and for Eve, and death doesn't have the last word for us. In Christ, we will live forever, even though we die, as Jesus says in John 11. We w- even though we die, we will not die, Jesus says. But that's a, this is the thing, church, and I want to just close by talking briefly about this. I think we get that, even if we don't understand it fully. I think we get it, right, that all right, I'm not going to die. In Christ, I'm gonna, I've got eternal life. Like that's a, that's, we understand that dimension of what it means to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. But, and that's good news. But the good news actually gets better than that. Because it isn't just that you won't die. The part that we have a harder time believing is that in Christ, sin doesn't even hold the same power over you that it once did. You have been made righteous. You are in right standing with God. It's as if God has, has no awareness of your sin. That's part of what we celebrate as we recognize our baptism into this relationship with Jesus. And as a part of the baptized community of Jesus, we have right standing before God. You have been justified. You have been made righteous. Your sins are forgiven. Not only if you, not, not, not the times, like if you forget to ask, right? If I forget to ask for God to forgive me of a sin, does God forgive me of my sin? Yes. The answer is yes. You've been made righteous. You're in good standing before God in Christ, not because of anything you or I have done, but because of the work that Jesus did on the cross. Your sins are forgiven, and now you are capable of living the life God imagined for you to live. That is why the good news is better than just that we have eternal life. It is that, but on this side of death, you have been made righteous. And it started with God's arrival on this earth as a baby lying in a manger. Without that event, without that event, his death and resurrection never happened. And so our job, as we understand that, is to be like Christ, to be people who bear this image in a better way than Adam and Eve proved to be able to do. Bear this image in the world. To be Christ's presence in the world. C.S. Lewis says it this way, which I love. I think I've shared this quote before, but it's too good not to share again. He says, Now the whole offer which Christianity makes is this, that we can, if we let God have his way, come to share in the life of Christ. If we do, we shall then be sharing a life which was begotten. It wasn't made. 
which always existed and always will exist. Christ is the Son of God. If we share in this kind of life, we also shall be sons and daughters of God. We shall love the Father as He does, and the Holy Spirit, Holy, Holy Ghost, will arise in us. He came to this world and became a man in order to spread to other men and women the kind of life that He has by what C.S. Lewis calls good infection. Every Christian is to become a little Christ. The whole purpose of becoming a Christian is simply nothing else. This is part of what that quote means. You are not a little Adam or Eve. You are a little Christ. Through the work that Jesus performed on the cross, we are heirs to God's promise and not Adam's action. Because of Christ, you're not going to do what you've always done. Adam was the first human to be created, and you are a new creation, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The old has gone, and the new has come. The first creation is now old. The new creation is all of us who are in Christ, which, praise God, includes Adam and Eve. And as we stand on the edge of Thanksgiving and Christmas, the thing that I kept thinking about was, is there anything more that we could be thankful for than that truth today? That the second Adam passed the test that the first Adam did not pass. And by passing the test, the second Adam brought life and grace and righteousness for you and for me and for Adam and for the world. And to that we say, praise God that Jesus is the true and better Adam. Christ has come. Christ is coming again. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the good news that we have and that we are aware of in Christ Jesus, that he, that he did something for us that, that Adam was unable to do. And we pray this, we, this morning that as we move into this season of remembering and reflecting and thinking about what that truth means for us, that you'll build in us some anticipation, some longing for his return. We, we see the evidence of this world's deep need for Jesus Christ. And we want to be little Christs. And we confess, God, that we are all too often little Adams and Eves running around with our sin and our brokenness, and we want to invite people into life and to the good things that come from Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, you'll be with us as we journey ahead in the weeks to come. We praise you that we are declared righteous in your sight through the work of Christ. And it's in his name we pray. And the church said this morning, amen. Let's stand this morning together. If you have a need that you want to make public, I'll be down front and would love to pray with you. There'll be other people around that would love to pray with you as well. I always encourage you to find somebody. There's people near you this morning that might could be encouraged with a hand on their shoulder, an arm around their back, a hug around their neck. However we need to do that to respond to God, let's do that while we sing this next song. Enjoy the-